Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up an interview with Michael Strike, who is working on a project to build a quantum-resistant ledger. And I feel like in some weird cosmic way, our whole podcasting journey has been building to this conversation because we keep talking about quantum computing. We keep talking about crypto and blockchain. We've talked about security a couple of times. And in all of those conversations, we sort of touched on the interface of those different fields. And this is the first time we actually sat down with a person who is working directly on that problem. How do you secure the blockchain and cryptocurrency more generally against the, the potential threat of quantum computing. So how did you feel about the interview? Yeah, I, th I thought it went great. Uh, we didn't get into adding artificial intelligence to the mix. Uh, or well, what are we even doing with our lives? <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was, uh, he, he had a great way of explaining mm -hmm. how, how this all kind of comes together and how this all works and, and what we should be worried about and, what uh, what not to worry about. So I thought he did a great job. But I did as well. So we got into you know what quantum computing is, and that pairs nicely with the interview we just published today with Anastasia Marchenkova. So he talked a little bit about you know quantum computing, why this is going to be a problem, why quantum algorithms are able to handle factorization problems better than classical computers, and why that's going to be an issue because so much asymmetric cryptography is based on exactly that sort of operation. And then we talked a little bit about why he thinks uh, securing Bitcoin from quantum computing is not really feasible, uh, why the engineering challenges would be very difficult, why the coordination challenges would be very difficult. And so what they've decided to do is just start over fresh with a new layer one that from the beginning is secured against uh, quantum computers. So it's a fascinating conversation. We hope you all get as much out of, it, out of it as we did. And without further ado, this is episode 121 with Michael Strike. Tonight, we're joined by Michael Strike. Michael was a computer architect for 20 years before turning his attention to creating a blockchain ledger that can withstand the emergence of quantum computing. Today, he pursues this ambition at a project called the Quantum Resistant Ledger. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, how are you guys? Glad to be here. Doing great. Appreciate it so much. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the projects that you're working on today? Sure. So my, I'll call it my classical background is uh, a network architect slash engineer. I've uh, been in IT for uh, like over 20 years. Um, my, let's call it my secondary career slash passion is uh, the intersection of blockchain, well, specifically blockchain, and in addition to blockchain, uh, the intersection of blockchain with quantum mechanics and quantum computers. Um, I originally had started going down this quantum physics rabbit hole, if you will, uh, several years ago, trying to get to the true nature of things as best science, as the best way that science can explain it. 
I uh, wish I would not have. I have more questions now than <laughs> answers. So uh, I had less questions going in. However, uh, after, after a lot of research and uh, uh, some revelational things, um, there are, uh, I came across quantum computers um, and uh, I had actually, ironically, actually heard about quantum computers uh, in the late 90s, literally that long ago, but I didn't realize, I had no idea what they were. I just remember talking to a colleague. So uh, I work on a project called the Quantum Resistant Ledger, which is a blockchain slash crypto project. And what's, what makes us different is that we are provably quantum computer secure using an NIST recommended hash-based signature scheme called XMSS. And I think it's been about, uh, about a year and a half since that was uh, recommended through NIST. The other, the other variant is LMS. I don't say variant, it's a different protocol. Uh, but the way that we do this is instead of, instead of using asymmetric cryptography, we use a hash-based signature scheme and a Merkle tree. So uh, my background is network engineering, network security, uh, SecOps. Uh, so some of that, a lot of the security stuff translated naturally. It was a natural progression in the blockchain. And that's what I find myself doing. So how many uh, how many other people there? I, I, we've heard of other people tackling quantum encryption in the past. So how many direct competitors do you have right now? So I would say that we have very minimal, less, I could probably count as far as real competitors. Right now, we're, we're, we are, our team is at the top of the space. We were the first industrial grade XMSS, provably quantum secure using a hash-based digital signing algorithm before anyone else. And this was years ago, before XMSS was even ratified. There were 50, 60, I think six, between 60 and 65 submissions to NIST for post-quantum uh, cryptographic digital signature schemes. And our founder of the project, Peter Waterland, had remarkably picked XMSS out of that many at the time. We were thrilled when it became ratified. It's a very, it's, it's a very nascent technology, obviously. And right. we, uh, uh, we, at this intersection, this very specific intersection, blockchain, and quantum were right there. Okay. So so in your mind, um, what's the most vulnerable industries right now uh, to the the quantum threat of being able to, to, to break the current encryption systems? So um, I can answer that question. I'm gonna take a little step back though. So in the 1970s, the, the answer is the answer is going to be uh, multiple industries, banking industry, um, uh, lo logistics, uh, just essentially any any, any industry that transports encrypted information using asymmetric cryptography. And so what I'm going to do is take a step back for a moment. In the 1970s, there was we had encryption, but there really wasn't a good way to to encrypt data and send it to someone without first sharing a pre-shared key. So I could encrypt something and I could send it to you and that we had encryption, but I would give you a key first or a secret, and then you would 
uh, enter your secret in. I would enter my secret in. And, you know, it, uh, you, were, you were able to communicate that way. Uh, asymmetric cryptography uses public-private keys, which gave us the ability to encrypt information by our, encrypt information with our private key and then present our public key, which verifies that the information we wrote with our private key is correct. And this type of encryption is used everywhere. So if you ask me which industries, as some of the industries I named off, but even your web browser uses HTTPS, the S stands for secure, and that uses secure socket layer, and that actually eventually turns into a protocol called TLS. But it, the negotiation of that, when your browser starts asymmetrically using a public-private key and a certificate exchange, and then you negotiate a secure symmetric channel. And the reason you don't just encrypt everything asymmetrically is because it's uh, processor intensive. Uh, so essentially everything, I would most encrypted, if not all of uh, web traffic, uh, certainly over 90%, uh, starts off using asymmetric cryptography, which is based on factorization, which is uh, which is potentially vulnerable to a sufficiently a sufficiently powerful quantum computer. So, so I always think of this in kind of a similar terms to Y two K. We with Y two K, we actually had a, a deadline, a date. We we knew that bad things were going to happen on that particular day, which did not actually happen. But um, so we don't we don't have an exact date when everything's in in trouble with quantum computing um can you can you give us a kind of a transition period a time frame of of danger so i can give you uh kind of my opinion kind of the general consensus among uh quantum uh, cryptographers and the u.s government governments and in the nist so the nist is saying we need to start preparing now and there's a very good reason for that because in, I'm going to say this becomes a real tangible threat in maybe three to five years in looking at, uh, and that, that's my guess as, as, a, as a quantum computer and, and technologist optimist, <laughs> uh, some of the uh, pessimists that are, you know, we won't, we'll never be able to solve the uh, systemic noise problem. The qubits are deep collapsing, which are uh, decohering which is the same thing as Windows blue screen and that is those manu the manufacturing problems. They're putting those, the pessimists are putting those out to 15, 20 years. So it's really not, it's no one, no one really knows as far as I know, but here's the thing. I do know that information is being stored now. The ciphertext is being stored now that could be potentially decrypted in the future with a quantum computer. So if I'm going to say that, okay, three, five years off until, until, you know, some major events besides just groundbreaking news stories are occurring. But as far as preparing for quantum computers, the U.S. government is saying, you need to, we need to be doing this now. And holding on to, holding on to encrypted ciphertext 
you know, if you're if you're encrypting something that needs to be secured for the next 10, 20, 30 years, you need to be doing that in a quantum secure way today. Right. Yeah, it strikes me that even if you take the pessimist's estimate at face value, 15 to 20 years is not that long to develop a post-quantum cryptographic protocol and implement it in a widespread enough fashion that it actually defends against that threat. I mean, if we knew the deadline is 20 years from now, I'm not sure that'd be enough time. So I'm curious as to whether or not you've given thought about the underlying technological changes that would need to happen. So instead of saying it's five years out, it's 10 years out, like what what headline might I read that would make me say, oh shit, th- this is a, this is gonna be a problem this year? Is, is it like a number of qubits? Is it uh, a benchmark you'd wanna see? Good question. So there actually was, kind of, it wasn't really an oh shoot moment, but there was a Chinese article that came out, I think it was last week. I could probably send you the link in Please which there, uh, in which RSA twenty forty eight is claiming to be vulnerable with. Um, I didn't. I, I don't remember the details of the article, but a, approaching a, a stage of vulnerability. So, in order to prepare, it depends on what technology you're talking about. Are we talking about a an IPsec tunnel? something like that, where things are encrypted uh, symmetrically back and forth? Or are we talking about a digital signing algorithm? In the case in the case of our project, this it's a digital signing algorithm. And what that is, is when I submit for, when Bitcoin, for example, submits a transaction to a node, it presents its public key for verification. And until that transaction is signed, its public key is sent everywhere across every node, in theory, it's broadcast and each node broadcasts the public key. And that public key through a sufficiently powerful quantum computer using Shor's algorithm can factor itself into from a public key into a private key. And I can get into factorization a little bit on exactly how that works, but that might be a little out of scope. So as an average computer user, I mean, I'm sitting here with the MacBook Pro, uh, and I would assume that Apple is going to create an operating system that incorporates some sort of quantum encryption into it. Um, How much do I, as an average user, have to pay attention to this, uh, or does it all get taken care of behind the scenes by the big players? So... I'm not sure about Apple. I do recall a couple of years, two ago, I think it was IBM that was actually writing a cold storage quantum, provably quantum secure data storage for uh, cold storage. I don't remember if it was hard drive or tape. Uh, for the average user, I I don't know if there's much that really can be done because your average users are not the ones writing the cryptographic protocols. They're not the ones <laughs> setting the uh, uh, the parameters for phase one and phase two on IPsec tunnels. They're not the ones that are creating the code for digital signature algorithms. I, as a as a practice, it, as a best practice, which sounds a little more better than OCD, I always keep my updates on my phone <laughs> religiously. It's a muscle memory thing. I don't even know that I'm doing it. And uh, I do the same thing with my PC. So 
I don't think that there's anything special that users need to do, but users need to end users need to be aware that these are coming so that they can ask their organizations, okay, are you guys thinking about this? Because I've worked in IT for over 20 years. I'm a I'm a I'm a consultant. Uh, I typically do two or three gigs a year uh, for different clients. And I can tell you no one in IT is talking about this. And I'm not spreading FUD. I'm not I'm not saying the sky is falling or any, anything that. All, all I'm doing is just tell it, informing what's going on that these machines are getting more and more powerful. And we're, we're approaching, um, we're approaching uh, quantum CPUs with several hundred qubits. It's been estimated that around 2,250 to 2,500 logical qubits and several more physics, several more thousand physical qubits, which form it, which form a, a way of error, error protection, uh, error correction, like ECC. You've got logical qubits and you've got physical qubits. The physicals, uh, the physicals make up a, a smaller subset of logical, kind of like ECC memory. You know, some of the circuitry is is designed to correct, uh, detect and correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, does that answer your question? Uh, I think so, um, but I'm, there. I mean, there's a lot, lot more to this. I'm just wondering how much does the average person using a computer have to be nervous about this? Um, some super geek out there using a quantum system uh, next week and hacking in and stealing all my passwords. I don't think, as far as keeping the updates, I don't think there's anything that can be done. Maybe if you, uh, maybe maybe uh, some more aff an affluent citizen might, that is a bit of a technologist or a futurist, if you will, uh, would, might consider talking to their financial institutions and making sure that there are you know, countermeasures in place for things like this. But this is all, this is all responsible. The resolution is the same thing as, as Y2, we call it Y2Q. <laughs> it depends on it depends on the developers, right? And uh, basically, essentially, back in I I remember you know I remember Y two K, and uh, we just had to take the updates, right? And as far as the IT organizations and corporations, they had to resolve their internal co COBOL COBOL code, mm -hmm. I think is what it was. <laughs> wow! And uh, they did all that. End users don't know what that end users right. don't know what the hell COBOL is, right? Right. But they but and it ended up being a mostly non-event because the developers had taken care of it and uh i will never underestimate the ingenuity and creativity of developers especially blockchain developers that are on the cutting edge of technology but this bitcoin problem and maybe we could talk about this some other time as far as making it quantum secure is just not practical for a lot of different reasons which is why from Genesis on our, on our project, from the beginning, we were, we've been quantum secure, provably quantum secure. So you can't go back and find some unsecure quantum data because of the immutability of blockchain. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. 
One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Future Audio Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuradipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So I actually, I actually do want to ask you about the infeasibility, unfeasibility of making the Bitcoin protocol quantum hardened. So okay. we actually we actually had the pleasure of just interviewing Anastasia Marchenkova. So if you've been in quantum computing, you, you've probably come across her. She uh, she's a great educator, and we yeah I've we, talked this, to her. Yep. Th- this this came up, and you know I I won't be able to reproduce the technical details off the top of my head, but but she mentioned Grover's algorithm and Shor's algorithm. And she said that actually it's a quadratic speed up. And if you doubled the size of the public keys, that might be enough. And so you might be able to fork the Bitcoin blockchain, do something along those lines. That's not going to protect you forever, but it might be able to push that horizon back. So you seem pretty confident that that's not the case. So I'm curious as to why why you think that, why, why you think it's just not feasible to secure Bitcoin. Like, should we just give up on Bitcoin? Is it over? So no, no big. I don't think Bitcoin's over. <laughs> the headline: and Bitcoin is over. <laughs> she's going to know more. She's she's actually a she's a I believe a quantum physicist. So she's going to understand mm-hmm. the quantum side, despite all of the, despite all of my studying. She's going to be more knowledgeable about that. She actually works in that field. She's uh, her your her YouTube channel is pretty cool. It is. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the feasibility. Um, of quantum itself, I'm going to talk about the complications of upgrading Bitcoin, which I can talk to. Okay. So Bitcoin is essentially vulnerable to a quantum computer using an algorithm um, called Shor's algorithm, which which was invented by Peter Shor in about 1991. And what it does is it's able to factor integers and polynomial time, which that means that it's just able to do it quickly. So I think when you're talking about quadratic speed up, you were you, um, uh, you, you were ta- you were talking about a, a different protocol, but uh, so there's uh, with the sign- with the signature scheme of Bitcoin, let me explain how addressing works. <clears throat> a Bitcoin address is essentially a 256 bit random number. That's the private address. That's all it is. You can generate one offline. With that 256-bit random number, you apply elliptical curve multiplication. With that, you end up with a 256-bit public key. Mm -hmm. So you've got your private key that is super secret. And you have your public key, which is what you share to everyone else. This is a one-way. This is supposed to be a one, essentially a one-way gate. In that, I can always generate the public key from the private key, but I can't generate a private key from the public key. Right. So it's one-way function. Basically. And the reason this is is because of uh, asymmetric uh, cryptography and factorization. So the way that this works is, let's just take. Let's take two very large numbers, one, two, five, nine, eight, seven, five, four, three, 
times seven two five six eight nine four four four. You can put that into your calculator very easily and figure out what it is. So, and you'll end. And when you do that, it's it, it's easy to do. But if you were to take a very large number, two hundred fifty six bits, and try to find find out the two prime factors that, when multiplied together, equal that, that number, there is no classical way to do this. That the industry or anyone. It, it, it's, it's essentially fundamental. I mean, that's factorization is at the core of asymmetric cryptography. That's why it works. Because when you have a large, a large number, you don't know the two prime numbers that it takes when you multiply them together to get that large number. Right. So with that being said, when you sign a transaction, you perform a transaction output in Bitcoin. You, you, manipulate the transaction, you create a hash for it, and then you submit the transaction along with your public key for verification. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a consensus, there's a consensus mechanism, right? It's running off proof of work. Uh, all of the nodes, when they receive the transaction, difference between miners and nodes, obviously, always remember right. this. <laughs> uh, once it receives that transaction, it sends out to all the nodes that it knows about, and they do the same thing. The tra transaction exists, essentially, hopefully, by design everywhere. While that's in play, your public key is in, in RAM on every, wor on every working node. Let's say if a sufficiently powerful quantum computer were attached to the, uh, to the internet and it was running and it was uh, connected to a node, Who's to say there's not just a rogue node? Let's say it receives a transaction. It's the, the transaction's not in RAM. Oh, I might be the only one that's received this transaction. Someone might've sent it to me directly. It's not been broadcast yet. You know what? I'm not gonna broadcast it. I'm just gonna send it to a quantum computer instead. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, fact, I'm gonna factor that private key or that public key into a private key, right? So this is a theory. I, I mean, this is, there's a few different attack vectors. This is one I came up with. It's called, it's, ro it's rogue node. Not in crypto, not your, not your, not your keys, not your crypto, not your node, not your rules. So those are uh, two tenets that the blockchain community essentially lives by. Uh, there also are some other attack vectors. In the early days of Bitcoin, uh, a script was used called pay to public key, and it's not really used anymore. What what ends up immutable on the chain today is a hash of the transaction transaction. And hashes like SHA-256 um, are considered to be quantum secure. And uh, but back in the original, back in the early days of the chain, the public keys still exist on chain. And the immutability is was one of blockchain's greatest advancements, right? It it allows everyone, whether they are, you know, white, affluent, uh, of color, not of color, it doesn't matter which race, you know, which race you are, or where you go to church or what neighborhood you live in. Everyone can read that whole blockchain because of its immutability and verify each transaction themselves. Right. But at the same time, that immutability, the first few years of that code is essentially based on asymmetric cryptography, asymmetric cryptography, which is based on factorization, which goes back to the 1970s. Mm -hmm. and so, that might so have been a little more in depth, but <laughs> I it, tried so, to cover so, the so basis. It could be breakable then, what you're saying. Like that that immutable legacy 
there's there's no way to go back now and harden it because by design the ledger is immutable. Well, here's the thing. What 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 is what does quantum securing Bitcoin really mean? Does that mean protecting the value of it against quantum computers? Does that mean any new transactions are protected? So right now there is a uh, uh, it, a lot of people will just say yes we yeah you just forked the code haven't you heard of forking the code it's called a fork how are you going to get the how are you going to get the 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 balances in public keys that are stored immutably early in the chain converted over there's people that have died there's people that have lost their that have lost their uh, that that have lost their private keys in dumpsters and they're trying to work with cities and find the hard drive, you know, because they threw it away. There's all sorts of craziness. There's all sorts of lost keys. What's going to happen when some of these keys that have been sitting uh, idle for, let's say, 10 years, maybe more, and all of a sudden funds, you know, maybe funds start to move around. You can't just upgrade the code of Bitcoin because it started, it didn't ever started as fully quantum secure. How are you going to get people to migrate? And if you do get people to migrate, how do you know you're going to get everyone? And this isn't just about making sure that that, that Bitcoin is secure. Confidence also has to exist. And any for any any money or security secure system, it has to have the confidence of the users. So and right now, and right now, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has that, and I'm not screaming FUD. What I am saying is, it's it is being it's scientifically viable that a sufficiently powerful quantum computer, once we get there, will be able to essentially move steel funds. Uh, I've thought about this a little bit. I think if I had a quantum computer in the next room over there. That little node right here, and I ran a cable loop. I think what I try to do is kind of not take the older funds, but maybe start taking things out of the mempool uh, in nodes on the internet and sending them to my quantum computer, just staying under the radar so yeah. as not to draw attention, but just uh, enough transactions to where I'm, let's call it highly profitable. And how long, I mean, if, 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 if you were to send out your public key nowadays, in any, whether or not you're using pay to public key or pay to public key hash, whatever script you're using to send a transaction, your public keys, your public keys out there, it's floating around. Who's to say there's not just someone keeping track of all the public keys right now? Yeah, there absolutely could be. I mean, there's 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 like there's at least three to there's probably three to five attack vectors that I could that I could talk about, and and the uh, upgrading the core of Bitcoin would be a the code and the signing algorithm would be a enormous amount of effort and collaboration. I would say that would be probably the size of it and how many nodes there are. The that would be unprecedented. The scope of the work in blockchain, in blockchain. And as I said earlier, never underestimate the ingenuity of blockchain developers. Uh, however, the legacy chain itself having funds attached to keys that are uh, crackable by a sufficiently powerful quantum computer is a real risk. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, 
Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. What does your solution look like then? So, so what does the quantum-resistant ledger accomplish, and how does it accomplish oh. it? Certainly. So instead of using a digital signature algorithm that uses asymmetric cryptography and factorization, we work on we work with NIST's recommended XMSS hash-based signature scheme. So right when you you know when you download a file and then you run it through, you hash it and you get the output, you make sure that the output's the same as it is uh, on the website. Uh, SHA-256 and its later variants are considered to be quantum secure. It's very, very difficult. It's one of the most difficult things in cryptography to get a pre-image or even a collision on a on a uh, the uh, on the uh, SHA on the hashing output. It it just can't. I mean, it's just almost impossible, if not impossible. It probably probably is. So the what we do the, what we do is we start with a we start with a key pair and then all of your key we generate a merkle tree and each tree has as a hash of the previous keys is a hash hashed 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 so your all of your keys are generated ahead of time in this tree and when you start to use your wallet you use the last one first and then you're able to by the by the time you use it and sign the transaction, it the nodes are able to hash the transaction to see hash the transaction reverse so that it can see that it's already been used. The difference is you can only we there's a limited amount of times you can perform a uh, transaction output. So if you build a wallet that has 512 one-time signatures or 1024 or 2048. Uh, I think if once you start getting into the tens of thousands, I think it might take a minute or two to generate that on a computer. Uh, but we can this can be done on our QRL wallet. Uh, but essentially, the main difference is instead of using asymmetric cryptography and factorization, we use a hash-based signature scheme. It's based on hashes and a Merkle tree. So the Merkle tree is all filled with hashes of public of public and private keys. So there is no factorization. There is no there is no uh, asymmetric cryptography. The wallet's all decided, the wallet is dec all decided up front. And it's generated when you create it, all of the keys and in the Merkle tree. So so there's Sorry. nothing for a, a quantum algorithm to grab onto. There's so, nowhere for it to deploy its advantage. Correct. There, there, there some there are some <laughs> that say Grover's is a uh, is a is a potential search algorithm. Uh, for uh, uh, hashes, uh, uh, but it, uh, that's not that's not really it, it, compared to how many compared to the power of the ASICs that we have, it would be easier to do it can, uh, classically than to do it through a quantum computer based on the amount of hardware we have. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today 
and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So I've heard, heard in the past that uh, people have predicted that as soon as we have a viable quantum computer that all of the uh, remaining uh, cryptocurrency will be mined in one afternoon. Um, and then I've heard other people say, no, that's, that's not really true. Um, how, in your mind, how vulnerable is the crypto mining industry uh, to quantum computing? I'm not worried about them. I'm not worried about the mining aspect. Okay. Uh, quite honestly, that's, um, uh, I think that, um, well, first of all, mining, mining's, mining's very closely watched. I mean, you have a lot of people watching where it's going and if, and if the balance of power were there suddenly to shift, I think the, the ecosystem, uh, would know quite a bit, uh, quite a bit quicker than, uh, uh, than anyone else. So I'm not, I, I don't think, I don't think that that's the main, the main risks. Uh, there's a lot of hash. There is a lot of hash power out there, uh, in the exo hashes now for, uh, uh for Bitcoin and, yeah, I, I just the, the the obvious, in my opinion, the obvious uh, vulnerabilities exist with the uh, factorization and with shore, and with shores. Okay, interesting. So, could you tell us a little bit about the cryptocurrency you built on top of it? That'll probably have to be the last question, but I'm curious about that. Uh, about what? About the cryptocurrency at the top of the show, you said that you're a you're a protocol, you're a hardware, but there's also cryptocurrency associated with the quantum resistant ledger project. Uh, the quantum resistant ledger is a cryptocurrency and blockchain. It's both. Okay. So it's uh, www.qrl.org, and um, it's it's its own native blockchain. I'm sorry if I didn't I didn't uh, specify that earlier. That probably would be helpful. We're our own native <laughs> layer one <laughs> blockchain. We're not an ERC twenty. We're not a yeah. We're not a. We have our we have our own nodes that have been running for like almost five years now. And uh, we use a, right now we're using a proof of work mechanism. Uh, we'll be migrating to proof of stake. Um, consensus mechanism arguments aside, I do like proof of work. And, but I also believe that proof of stake has its place. And we're also integrating uh, EVM support uh, for uh, smart contracts. Uh, we have, uh, uh, we have we have lots we have lots of other features. We have multi-signatures, uh, multi-sig capability, so that um, weighted multi-sig, so that you can have different people with different weights, and the weights have to add up in order to be able to perform a transaction from a wallet. Uh, and we're also working on a project still uh, that has the potential to take uh, Ethereum, put an XMSS wrapper around it and store it back on Ethereum, the Ethereum blockchain, but quantum secure. That's fascinating. And uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, where, where's the project heading? I mean, it sounds like you guys have been around for a while, nodes running for five years. That's, that's quite some time. So what's, uh, what's in the future? Well, we our proof of stake is in the future. Uh, we're going to be, we're hoping to, Go live with that soon. Uh, we just we just had a hackathon uh, a few months ago in Amsterdam uh, in November. Um, our community is growing. Uh, I'm doing outreaches. Quantum 
but you know what? I don't even think that those are the big, those are the big deals. I see this, this to me feels like, um, uh, CDs, DVDs, technologies that the I, smartphones, technologies that you're looking that are happening that automatically are just going to happen. So how, what, what's, what do they say? A, uh, a rising tide lifts all, lifts all ships in the way that quantum computers are progressing in their current state. I see the, or even just the, aside from what we're doing internally, just the organic adoption from the techno, from what's being developed with the technology increasing over time. Uh, but we are constantly upgrading the code. We've have, uh, um, We've had we have some some developers that have developed some unique cryptographic primitives for use uh, for use on the chain. So you don't necessarily uh, with with EVMs and such you don't necessarily have to understand quantum or even cryptography in order to be able to do something like ephemeral messaging on chain. So these are all things in development. There's no there's there's no book. For this, a lot of these things haven't been a lot of these things haven't been done yet. I'm used right. to being able to go to work. I just follow best practices. Someone would argue with me, and this I'll just point out a picture in a book, something like that. Bring up the bring up the the Cisco article or the Juniper or whatever, and say, look, this is what they say. That doesn't exist right now. So it it feels a little uh, it feels a little slow at times, but that's because we're having to develop it. Well, that's fascinating. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, one one question. Um, people come to the show for answers, and I really wanted to get you to answer, is Schrodinger's cat dead or alive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and no. It both is and And isn't. both. <laughs> so I would love to have a conversation on quantum superposition. Mm -hmm. And, but that might be out of scope. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so well, that's always, that's always the fun story, right? It's a, it's a macroscopic uh, uh, analog of something happens at the subatomic layer, right? And under superposition, but uh, yes, oh, no, yeah. and both. For that reason, yeah. <laughs> Just don't I, look yeah. at it. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then, I, then it, don't look at it. And then my answer is true. <laughs> once you look at it, once, once you look at it, I'm a liar. Besides, okay. Now, now, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? No, uh, other than uh, if you have, if people are interested in this, the intersection of blockchain and quantum, uh, we have a vibrant Discord community. Our website is www.qrl.org. Uh, my name is Michael Strike. I'm the director of outreach, and um, keep those digital assets secure. All right, fantastic. Good closing line. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.